That's quick. I barely got here. <laughs> and we are excited about groups. It is, is the way, it's really our strategy, our strategy to uh, know each other. Our church has gotten larger, and so groups is a way where we know each other, and it's a great place to grow. And we also, many of you are partners in the room. You may not know what a partner is. It is not some kind of elite group of people. It is just folks that, one, know Jesus and have decided this is their church and committed to it. So we, once a year, we do a big partner uh, party. We, we, this is actually our 19th birthday, so it's our 19th birthday party. It's next Sunday night. If you're a partner, put it on the calendar, right? Like we're going to have a cake and everything. We got cake and we got the radius shirts that's... Everybody likes the ones that says, we are family, we got those, we got, it, it'll be a party, they got stuff for the kids, whatever you do at a party, we do party, but for us, the biggest thing we like to do is tell stories, tell stories of what God's done over the last 19 years, and so we'll spend about 45 minutes telling stories, and another, another 20 minutes singing together, and a good bit of time eating together, and just, and just have a really good time. If you're not a partner, you've been, man, I've been meaning to do that, I, I probably can get you in. So just, just let me know, or Kim's out there. Let Kim tell her I told you. You know how it works. But don't, don't like, like, you better be planning on it because that's what we're doing. Again, it's not some sort of elite group of people, but for us, it's the folks that own this place and are committed to it. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this passage. <laughs> Lord, I feel almost overamped about this book that we're about to study. So I really want to... As we read the words off the page, I want to be under the authority of those words. Recognize these are words that you had recorded for us to read. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would teach them, that you teach it clearly, that you would uh, make it through all the other stuff that we got going on in our heads. I trust you with these minutes together in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we start a new book of the Bible, I like to uh, start from the beginning. It's kind of my tradition. So if you've been here for a long time, you've heard this a bunch of times. I'm sorry. You're about to hear it again. Uh, if it's your first time, what I really like to do is remind us, because I didn't know growing up. I, I listened. I went to church. I, I learned a lot. I know some stories, but I didn't really know how it worked. So we're going to study the book of Galatians, but it's way toward the end of the Bible. So how, what set it up? So, so the very beginning of the Bible is the book of Genesis, and it starts with this one thing, I got hand motions for it and everything, creation, right? So, so God created. That is a massive concept, right? That is a concept that is being debated in every classroom across America. And, and so let's just acknowledge that. A lot of people don't believe God created. Here's what I, I want to say, though. You got to believe something. Either God created or by faith you believe in evolution. Last I checked, you weren't there. I wasn't there when God created, and you weren't there when it just exploded and all happened, right? Like, so, like, we got no eyewitnesses, so we have these two, two faith systems and beyond, really. I, we believe here at Radius, and the church throughout its history has believed that God created. Now, stacked on top of that foundation really establishes a whole lot of things. It establishes the value for life. So if God created, if he created you, then you're made in his image according to the scriptures, which makes us different than the animals. Right? We have a soul. We're, we're created in God's image, which is another massive concept, which I have no time to talk about. So maybe I shouldn't be talking about it at all. I don't know. But that's how the Bible starts. It starts with creation. It says we're made in God's own image. It says that we're made male and female. So it establishes two genders right out of the gate. And then it establishes marriage, one man 
in one woman. Lots of things that are being debated in our culture right now go to the very beginning of the Bible, which is, cre- which is creation. It says that God's the creator, which means that it's his design. And if he's the creator and we are the created ones, then we're under his authority in his design. It's funny, that is a topic that'll make a room go quiet these days because it's so loaded. And yet for you, like if you didn't know it, that's in your Bible. It's actually really kind of clear. Starts with creation, and real quick, creation, we got the fall. The saddest part of the whole Bible. God creates man and woman. They're having a blast in the garden, right? No clothes. How can get any better than that? Like we're just running around naked, having a good time. All the animals, all, the, all things in front of you and, and relationship with God with no interference. And then men and women rebelled against God, and we call that the fall. It, it, rebels doesn't sound very sweet. It wasn't a very sweet moment. They rebelled. They went the other way, and they are put out of the garden, and life got hard. Every mom in the room knows about how hard childbirth is. Everybody who has worked a job knows how hard work can be. Things changed that we're not going to be. Life got hard, so we got the fall, and then we have the flood, Noah and the ark, and then we have nations. Now you're halfway through the book of Genesis where God establishes all these languages. Long story, I don't have time to talk about it. And then he established one nation out of one guy. Anybody know his name? Abraham. Anybody sing that song when you were a kid? You went to church, Father Abraham. Amen. It's kind of like beer, bottles of beer on the wall. It just keeps going and going. (laughs) Father Abraham, he's number one. He's number one all time. If you're a Jew, he's the beginning. He's the father of of the Hebrew nation. Abraham, Isaac, his son, Jacob. Jacob has his name changed to what? Anybody know? Israel. The nation of Israel that's on the map today that you read about in the news all started with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Jacob changed his name. Israel had a bunch of kids. He had 12 sons. I got five. I feel a little elite by, just by that standard. But he, he had 12, and of course, they multiplied, and so this nation began to grow. It's, it's the nation of Israel. If you know the history and the Bible, the way the Bible rolls is eventually the Jewish folks are all taken captive by the Egyptians. Long story, I had to tell it another time, and God sends them a savior. His name was Moses. Maybe you've heard of Moses. Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go along with some other threats, and uh, eventually Pharaoh lets them go. They walk through the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness. And what does Moses get? He gets the law. It's where the Ten Commandments were established. So the law was established. We're going to talk a lot about that in this little book of Galatians. I'm just trying to give you context. So we're only at Exodus. We hadn't made it very far, so let's speed through the rest of it. And then they, they, they actually go into the promised land. There's a book called Joshua. Joshua leads them for a little while. There's a book called Judges. There's a variety of leaders lead them for a little while. And then come all the kings. We've spent 15, 18 weeks on King David, the greatest of the kings, and he establishes Israel on the map. Kings lead the nation of Israel, even though it splits into a north and southern kingdom, and uh, eventually they're overtaken by other nations, right? I can tell you the dates, but I'd probably bore you, right? So that's that's the Old Testament. It goes from Genesis to the book of Esther, Nehemiah and Esther. That's the narrative. That's the history. That's how it works. And then you kind of get this, these other books, Job through the Song of Solomon, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. That's the poetry. And the poetry kind of fits in where the kings are. That's when it's written. Actually, David and Solomon wrote the majority of it. You know, like, like there ain't no rappers 
when, when people are poor. Nobody, you, can, you don't have time to rap. You got, you got to go to work, right? Like, in, in poor nations don't produce any country songs because <laughs> we ain't got no artists, right? Like, people got to go to work. But while Israel was really wealthy, they wrote their poetry right there in the middle, and it slides into the history. That makes sense? And then you got all these prophets. It starts with this guy named Isaiah, and it goes all the way to the end called Malachi. They're prophets, and they speak into the history. They're consistently speaking into the history and trying to push the people of God back to God. So the very last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. We named our youngest son Malachi. I insisted on that name so that Cheryl could not talk me into another one, right? Like, I was number six. By naming Malachi, we're done. That's it. We just dropped him off at college, and uh, they made us stand up by how many kids we had left at college. There's a couple right beside. I see the Khalil somewhere, and I saw the Khalils, and they dropped one off at college. A couple beside us were dropping their first off. They were a little weepy about the whole thing, and me and Cheryl were sitting there like, let's get this over with and get out of here, right? Like, and then they decided to make us stand up. So they go, first child, if it's your first child, then so the parents stood up. I don't know how many parents in there. They stood up, and they went, second child. I'm like, baby, they're going to quit before they get to us. Third child, they got the five kids left at college, and there's two families left. I'm like, is he going to say one more? And then he goes, has anybody in here left six children at college? And we stood up. I looked at Sarah. I go, we win, baby. We win. (laughs) Nobody but Malachi, so the prophet, we're done with the Old Testament. There's this 400-year break between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I like to call the Old Testament the Older Testament. They're both old, right? The New Testament is 2,000 years old. And it starts with the book of Matthew and four, four books back to back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. Four different accounts of the life of Jesus. Okay, like, like if, if you're a new believer, please don't open up your Bible and start in First Chronicles. All right? It's going to be a lot of people dying. It's going to be really confusing. All right? So, like, start with one of these. I like Mark. You know why? It's the shortest. It's the simplest Greek it translates into the simplest English. I like it. I like bullet points. I like short emails, right? Like Mark like, gets it. So if you want to grab one, grab Mark. Grab one of us. We'd love to read it for with you if you've never read it before. Some folks really like John. John's this powerful book. He's a little bit more sensitive than the other three. Like he's, he's more, I don't know. Like, so people love the book of John. Grab one of those four if you want to start and, and read one of those. That'll get you started. It's about the life of Jesus. And there's this book called Acts. It's the fifth book. And it is, it's our story. It's the church's story. It's where it all began for us. And it records this story. It actually, some folks call it the Acts of the Apostles. It actually records the story primarily of Peter and Paul, and it outlines their lives and their ministries. So as you get toward the end of Acts, the second half of Acts, it's all about this one guy named Paul. And he travels around, and he plants churches from town to town. He leads a couple people to Jesus. They believe. They gather together for a little bit, and then they tell a couple of their friends about Jesus, and it gets a little larger, and those churches become established in those towns. That's literally how Radius started. We started in an apartment right down the street with six adults and six kids. All six kids mine, right? So, like, we got the double digits anyway. Like, and, and then over the years, it is, it's just multiplied, right? A few people at a time, a few people decide to follow Jesus, a few people join us, and over the course of time, here we are, and There's multiple other campuses that have multiplied. That's what's happening in the Bible when Paul is traveling and starting churches. So when he writes this letter to this group of people, the 
the books are often named after the group of people they wrote, wrote it to. So we're going to study the book of Galatians. So this group of people, they call them the Galatians, right? Like Lexingtonians is really hard to say, so we're hardly ever called that. But that's, they're the folks in the region of Galatia. A lot of people believe that it's the four cities in southern Galatia. One of them's named Derby, Lystra. There's one that's called Antioch and another one called Iconium. Four cities that have different churches, and he's writing this letter. And back in the day, no internet, right? So we're going to pass the letter around. It's written in Greek, and we go to Iconium with it, and they read it at their church, and take it up Street Lystra, and they, they read it at their church. So he's written this letter to those folks, and this is the very first time he's written a letter. So it's the original letter. This letter throughout church history has been massive. Martin Luther actually called it his wife, probably before he got married, because it doesn't work too good to call something your wife after you get married, but... He called the book of Galatians his wife because it taught this concept of grace. And when the Reformation happened uh, 500 years ago, grace had kind of disappeared. People had stopped talking about grace. They lost the understanding of grace. And so he writes this letter to these folks in Galatia, and he's going to emphasize grace. Let me read a little bit up to you. Chapter 1 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle... Sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. That makes sense? Paul writing to the people in South Galatia. That's what's happening. Like most letters in that day would have the writer addressing who he's writing to. What's kind of hard to catch unless you know how the whole book is, like, like the other stuff that he says in those first couple verses, like you can tell he's ready to go. Like he's ready to have a hard conversation. You got to get geared up to have the hard conversation. He's ready to have the hard conversation. There's no deer in here. It's not like deer Galatians. There's no deer. Like let's get to the point. You, you, when you're a little angry, you just want to get to the point. You ever sent that email at midnight and you're like, you hit send and you're like, ooh, I don't know if I believe everything I wrote in there. Like, like he believes everything he's written, right? But this is like one of those moments where like he's hot when he's writing it. And you're going to feel it as I read it. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Traditional Greek and Hebrew writings would say grace and peace to you. All that makes sense. And he he drops this line. I, I just want us to sit on this one word. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. That word gave is an amazing word. If you were with us last week, we talked about how uh, God scatters his love. He actually used the old Hebrew word, which would would say that it's shocking how generous he is. And when you read this passage directed at real people in South Galatia, Paul knows their stories. I know a couple of your stories. You know some stories of the people in your small group because a lot of times you tell stories. It's, it's this scattering of God's love that makes no sense. Why does he continue to offer it to people who reject it regularly? And yet, yet he does. And right here in the passage, Paul's trying to establish this right out of the gate. He says that Jesus gave himself. He was generous. He scattered his love on our behalf. He introduces this idea of a generous God, this new word, this word called grace. Give you a quick, uh, quick definition if you like me. I like short ones. 
Grace means unmerited favor. Uh, Yancey says this about grace. Grace is, Christ, is Christianity's best gift to the world. A spiritual nova in our midst, exerting a force stronger than vengeance, stronger than racism, stronger than hate. Grace is this gift from God that we did not deserve. It's more powerful than all the other forces on the planet. As a matter of fact, when you compare religions, you can argue about how they're different, but the one thing that sets Christianity apart is this word, grace. It's different. It says that he did it. Last week, if you uh, missed, we put a five-gallon bucket up here, and we put $10 on the front. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, Chris CB ended our service last week, if you missed it, in straight-up used car salesman mode, <laughs> somewhat manipulating you to put $10 in. I know all of you really wanted to, but, but like what we wanted to do was demonstrate how it would be fun if we all put $10 in a pot and, and what would happen over the course of the week. So every campus did that. We dominated, which is what it's all about. No, anyway, like, like, like every campus did it, and I think it's $14,297. Somebody put some ones in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think some of the other campuses feel a little pressure. They're trying to connect a couple more tens this week. But here's what we decided to do with it. We, every campus has got a different gas station. We've got the Speedway right down there by Moe's. You know what I'm talking about? The Speedway right there on the corner. I talked to the manager, Linda. She's really excited about us coming next Saturday. We're going to go there, and we're going to have a little party in her parking lot. She agreed. I think we got to wear some vests and stuff so nobody gets run over. But uh, she agreed that we could give a customer, when they fill up with gas, a $10 bill. So we're going to take your 10 without your permission, and give it to a customer. If a customer fills up with gas, we're just going to hand them a 10 So we're buying down their gas, in essence. So we're going to have a little celebration. We're not going to invite them to church. We're not going to ask them a bunch of questions. We'll probably wear radius shirts. There only can be eight or ten of us. If you want to bring your neighbor and give them ten bucks, great. If I see you, I'm not giving you ten bucks, right? Like, you put ten bucks. (laughs) Why? Because we thought it would be cool to to show our community grace. There's going to be some losers at Speedway next Saturday, right? And we're going to give them $10, and they ain't worked all week. Does that bother you? Your $10, right? And there's going to be some people there that worked all week, and you're going to be excited about giving it to them. There's going to be all this variety of people that we're going to give away thousands of dollars just because, because followers of Jesus, like, that's what we'd like to do because that's what he did. He was generous. Now, generally at Radius, when we give gifts away. We vet them, and we try to put them in just the right spot. We just thought this would be a great way through a story to explain this concept, the grace, unmerited favor. That's a great definition, but it's really hard to comprehend without the narrative. Jesus, when he taught grace, would often teach it through stories, really multiple stories in the Bible about God's grace. I'd like to tell you just one, and uh, I read this And what's so amazing about grace by Philip Yancey, he takes a story that Jesus told and kind of retells it in a different way. So let me tell it to you like this. There's a young girl. She's in her late teens. She lives in Traverse City, Michigan. She and her mom and dad are kind of into it. Does that ever happen in y'all's house? I don't know. I had six teenagers. Like, it'll get a little testy at times, except this is kind of tipping. This is tipping over. Mom and dad don't approve of a number of things. They don't really like her no, nose ring. Like that, so there's a little tension there. They do not like, I'm not even going to put my hands on my legs, the length of her skirts. All right, they don't like that. 
and they're, they're having these conversations. The arguments are happening. And, and uh, one night, her very last words to her father are, I hate you. Not quite at that volume. She comes back to the room and locks the door, and her dad comes back later to try to, you know, make things right. But inside the room, she's plotting on what she's going to do, and she executes it that night. She runs away. When she's running away, she's got a little bit of money, and she's got to figure out where can she go where her mom and dad can't find her. <laughs> so she's in Michigan, and she thinks her parents would think she'd go to Florida or Texas or somewhere like that. So she goes to Detroit. Nobody wants to go to Detroit, right? No offense if you're from Detroit. Nobody goes to Detroit. So she goes to Detroit, and on her second day in Detroit, she meets a man much older than her. He drives a really nice car, and he takes care of her. He buys her her lunch, and then he finds her a place to stay that night. And she, well, you know what's about to happen. She uh, very quickly finds herself beholden to this man. This man begins to teach her what makes other men happy. And very quickly, what she thinks is partying is really her being trafficked. She calls him boss. He moves her to the penthouse because she's underage and he can get more money for her. Her parents are searching. There's even milk, milk bottles with the picture, with her face on it. However, she knows they'd never find her because she's dyed her hair, and she's completely changed her look. And in her mind, she's just partying, and she's having more fun than she's ever had, and she has more money than her parents have, but she's living extravagantly in her own mind. Even though uh, the truth is that she's been tricked, she's been trapped, she's been taken advantage of in pretty horrific ways. After about a year, as she looks back on her little town in Michigan, she actually feels sorry for them. They don't know what fun is. She feels bad for her parents. But then she gets sick. And very quickly, her boss wants nothing to do with her again. Now, she has only one way to pay for her habit. I forgot to tell you, he introduced her to pills real early, which was part of his strategy to get her hooked. And the only way she could support her habit was to continue to do what she'd been doing, except she did it for a lot less money. And eventually she found herself sleeping on the streets as a teenage girl in Detroit. Winter was coming and it was getting cold and she began to ask this question that she'd never asked before, God, why did I leave? Why did I leave my parents sobbing? just wanting to go home. So she gets up her nerve and she finds a phone. She uh, calls her mom and dad. This is back in the day. Some of y'all don't even know how this works, but they have a little recorder at the house and she calls the home. And she, she can't leave the voicemail, so she hangs up. Calls them again, hangs up third time. She finally gets up the nerve and she leaves them a voicemail. That, that, for those of you who don't know, you have to come back and you got to press it at night and you listen to it. And on the voicemail, she said that tomorrow I'm going to take a bus home to Traverse City. I'll get there about midnight. Left it at that. Seven-hour bus ride. 
as you can imagine, with multiple stops between Detroit and Traverse City. She's got all these questions going through her mind. Do they even believe I'm alive? Have they changed their phone number? Is, is this even worth my trip? Should I just go straight by because I'm ashamed? I don't want to see them. She's got this speech just in case she does see them. As soon as she sees her dad, she's got this rehearsed speech in her mind that starts with that. I know I was wrong. I, I, I'm sorry. And on, on, on one level, she was wrong when she left. And on the other level, she was taken advantage of in the deepest of ways. They pull up to Traverse City, and the bus driver says, you got 15 minutes, and then we'll load back up and go. And so she walks into the bus station. And as she walks into the bus station, there's a lot of noise in there. She's trying to face midnight. What, what are all these people here for? And she begins to look, and there's 40-plus of her family, cousins, brothers and sisters, mom and dad. A dad busts out of the 40 people when she comes in the door, sprints across the bus station snatches her up in her in his arms and she begins to try to get her rehearsed speech out she's trying to say dad i'm i'm sorry and he's 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 just taking it in he eventually covers her mouth and says we don't have time to talk right now we have a banquet at the house we got to get in the car we got the whole neighborhood at the house we're going to celebrate tonight darling welcome home Luke 17, 10, it's the verse right before Jesus told that story. It says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. It doesn't matter where you've been, who's taking advantage of you, what bad decisions you've made. There's a father. He's waiting for you. He's looking for you. He's hoping you're going to make a decision to turn to him. By the way, I don't know how you feel about yourself, but every one of us in this room relate to the prodigal son. Every last one of us, when we walk in that bus station, I don't know how clean you feel about yourself. Maybe your story's not very sorted at all in your own mind, but when you walk into the presence of a holy God, you look filthy. You look damaged. You do not belong. But grace says that, the fact, that beside the fact that you do not belong, God comes to you and with great joy gives you his all. As a matter of fact, the angels in heaven party when just one person, just one, not hundreds, not thousands, just one person turns to Jesus, heaven erupts. The celebration. They're so happy that you've been set free. That, that, that the sin that has encumbered you, that has held you hostage, that you're set free of. That this whole life that's built around self, this, this whole selfish way of going about things. They, they see you believe and they know like you're set free from that. You could actually walk free of always thinking about yourself. So heaven, they throw this massive party. Paul writes this letter. He writes it to a group of people just like us. He can look around and call names just like I can. He knows their stories. He remembers when they believed. 
He knows who they were before they believed and who they were after they believed. And it was this amazing moment for him to watch the churches in these towns go from two to six to ten. People who have been transformed by the blood of Christ, changed and freed. And so he writes these first few verses. And I, I think if he were here today, he would ask you to remember that day when you believed. You remember that first day? Often uh, when I'm out and about, somebody will tell me they've, they've believed ever since they were born. I don't always have the nerve to tell them that's impossible. Like, when did you believe? Could have been a season. Could have been a day. Sometimes folks will tell me that their uncle was a minister in Seneca, South Carolina. <laughs> I'm like, why are you telling me this? Because I guess because I'm a pastor. Like, he ain't my cousin because he's a minister. But, like, in some ways, there's this, there's this weird thing that we do that makes us feel like we're connected to religion so that maybe we're saved because of the people that we know. Cannot be true. You have to believe, and God has grace waiting for you. He's done all his work. It's done, been done. And it's right there. He holds it out in front of us. The only way to be born again is to believe. That's why we call it amazing grace. If I could sing, I tried a couple weeks ago. I ain't trying again. I, like, I bust out in it. Amazing grace. And then Paul writes this interesting word. He says, this great line of he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Like, let's sing, and then he starts the next line. And it's not sweet. It's like he set you up. Like It's kind of like the rope of dope. He set you up, and then here it comes. He says, I am astonished. Your mom ever said that to you? My mama did. She actually used that word, astonished. And occasionally it was the word shocked. Another translation translated that. That's never a good thing. She didn't say, I'm astonished that you hit that jump shot. She never said that. She never said that. <laughs> On occasion, she would break out the astonished. And it usually started with John Douglas Reeves, I am astonished. I'm shocked. I can't believe you did that. You're my kid and you did that? She wasn't always sweet. You can tell her if you ever meet her. She was, she was, she was direct, and Paul's being direct. And you know why? Because he loves them. He's scared for them. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. I love this line, which is really no gospel at all. He's like, in comparison to that day when you first believed and you were set free, you had this new place before God where you were no longer living under his wrath. Now you can walk around free. Now why are you going back? Why did you desert? The literal word in, in the Greek is, is a military word. It's like deserting the army. Like it's, it's like cowardice. I'm running the other way. I cannot do this thing that's completely free. I cannot do this thing. It's hard for me to believe that he did it all. Some simple math of grace. Faith equals grace. Right, so, so when you believe faith, which is really no work at all, it unlocks this grace, this, this work that Christ has already done on the cross. It unlocks it to you. That's how you get it. So faith plus works, I don't know if y'all pay attention in math class, 
cannot equal grace. Right? Like you'd have to take something away from grace for faith plus works to equal it. You'd have to put a negative sign on the other side. Make sense? Y'all pay attention to algebra? That's how it works. So, so when you add something to faith, when it takes one more thing, it makes it worthless. It steals all of its value. We do communion every Sunday. I don't know if you've been here to Radius before. We do this regularly. We do this weekly. We do it to remind ourselves that he did it, 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 he did it. It's not he and I did it. It's not we did it. It's he did it. And if you add anything to that statement, it's not saving faith. It scares the heck out of me when the church begins to add stuff. Almost none of them would say that there's an addition and yet the way they talk about certain subjects just scares me that we're misleading folks down a road to where there's some combination of what Christ did and the way they live brings them to salvation. That happens all variety of ways. It's, it's certainly true by all of us that for some reason we're all, we, we have this selfishness that's constantly gnawing at us and, and whatever we want to do, we can find a way to have license to do it, right? Like, like there's always some excuse about just about anything. All of our minds, we have Johnny Cochran in our minds, like we can argue for anything when we really want it in, in the form of license. But that's not what this is about. This young church, these young believers that haven't known Jesus very long, they've been gullible and somebody's come along and he's tricked them. Literally, that's what the scripture says. He, he says, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. They tricked you. And the next thing you know, you're adding something. I, I want to say to you, I, I'm sorry for when the church has done that to you. And even as I apologize as the leader in the church, like, it, it's a we, right? We, the church have done some really ugly things that would fall in the category of self-righteousness that confused the heck out of our community. My neighbor, we lived in Atlanta, went to a church, and they produced the giving list. It was, a, it was this, from his church, it was his giving list, and, and he, he showed it to me. He didn't know Jesus, by the way. He, wasn't, he hadn't believed. And so we were talking in the front yard. He was, what do you think about this? And he showed me where he was ranked on the list. And in a little note, he was chastised for not being higher up the list. And as, as a believer, I, I just wanted to vomit. Shoot, I'm all about generosity. The followers of Jesus should be generous. This isn't a follower of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's being taught based on how they communicated through that, that, that his finances were connected to his salvation. Whether they say that, they probably never say that in, in real life, but that's what's being communicated. I want to say to you, I'm sorry for that. Shame on us. That's been done in all sorts of ways uh, throughout history. And then we could go down and we could talk about a variety of things. I, I won't dig up all those things, but right now, I think if we polled our neighbors and you go, what's the first thing you think of when you think of the evangelical church in America? What do you think they'd say? I bet money they say politics. I bet money that they would know us for our ungrace instead of our grace. I bet they would say we're angry 
You could argue that that's been spun. It certainly has been. But anybody sane in the room would also say it's true. That this, this thing, our country, our love for our country, and I'm all, all, all for it. I'm to die for my country. Like, it's become such a big deal that it seems like it's actually a bigger deal than the gospel. Like we're identified it by it instead of people know us for our ungrace, for our anger, instead of for our grace. It's concerning. It makes me wonder whether who and what we're really worshiping. Because what happens when you give in to selfishness, what happens? Then you become the center as opposed to Christ becoming the center. You become identified by, by these other things as opposed to the simple truth that faith equals grace, not faith plus anything. Paul continues to write last two verses. But even if we, I love this, or an angel from heaven shows up at your front door, and preaches a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. The word there is anathema. That's the Greek word. It means eternally condemned. To put it real frankly, it means why don't you go to hell? As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. Strong words. Anathema is the strongest Greek word for condemnation. Chuck Swindoll, an old preacher that I really like, I'm reading his commentary. He actually says he uses two of our what would be swear words for us. It's, uh, he goes, God, Paul is saying, "Damned to hell." That's that's what he thinks you should be if you pollute the gospel. It is this massive deal to add to faith. It ruins everything. He's in this kind of freedom fighter kind of mode. Paul's angry. So you can imagine him spitting while he's reading this out to somebody to write it down on the page for him in Greek. And this letter is going to be, after he writes all six chapters of it, he's going to hand it to him. He's going to give it to a runner, and they're going to run it to these towns, and they're going to read it at church. <laughs> you got this angry guy who just led them to Christ. He's angry on their behalf, not at them. He's like, you had all this freedom. I want to fight for it. Don't let these people come in and steal your freedom. He's not only fighting for them, he's fighting for this. Because when you add to the gospel, when you add to faith, then you reduce the value of the cross. And the next thing you know, in front of the living God, you are saying that his son's death was not enough. But we celebrate this every Sunday. If you have been with us, like we celebrate it and we say, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. He did it, he did it, he did it. I didn't do anything. When we come up, we're like the girl coming through. When you come up to take it or go back to take it, you're like the girl coming through the bus station. Like we come in here, we know, like those of us that know Jesus, we know our position. We were lost. We got no business in the presence of a holy God, and yet his grace, his unmerited favor, he wants us there. As a matter of fact, it's even better than meeting somebody for the first time that's great. You're coming back. Remember the fall at the beginning of my talk today where we fell in the Garden of Eden? We were separated from God. We knew God. Humankind knew God. And then he had a plan to restore us. So when we come back in, as you walk up and take bread and juice, you're meeting the one you were designed to have a relationship with. And he celebrates. If one of you is not giving your life to him yet, I ain't got nothing better to give you. This freedom that he offers by grace, 
There'll be a party in heaven like the moment you believe. We party a little bit. We do baptisms and we give hugs when people are wet. We think that's a party, right? Like, but they party in heaven. They celebrate. When you come up here, there's this cell like you're walking up the aisle. Remember who you were and who you are now. So we celebrate a death because this death saved us from eternal death. Romans actually says that we co we, were, we co-died with Jesus. We were co-crucified. We were co-resurrected with Jesus. Like, we got to walk through it through him. Praise God. I want to pray. I'm going to invite the band out. We're going to sing. If you can, keep your mind in one place and remember who you were and who you are now and just celebrate. <laughs> celebrate it. And if you've yet to meet him, I want to talk to you. Somebody wants to talk to you. Talk to us. Jesus, we thank you for uh, your work on the cross. You know us, Lord. We get running around. We get defined by so many other things. It's so good to be here on a Sunday and look at this bread and juice and remember who we were without you. Sink it in our minds again this morning, Lord. Help us walk out these doors free. Help us stay in the freedom tomorrow. Lord, in the morning when we wake up tomorrow, help us get our heads around the idea that you set us free on the cross and then allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into and through the day. Use us as your vessels of generosity as we walk um, to work and to school and all our different places. We want to shine like free people do. Listen to us as we worship. We love you. Amen.